Morning, Restore. <clears throat> this needs to be a little taller for me. All right. Um, so I got a habit that uh, I need uh, on a daily basis. There's something that uh, I really can't operate as a husband, a man, a father, a Christian without, uh, and it's coffee. Uh, you probably thought I was, I'm supposed to say like scripture or prayer. <laughs> But I'm just going to start with confession of sin today. Just, I have an addiction. And so when I wake up in the morning, like, my, my, like part of my motto in the morning is no talkie before coffee or kind of thing. Like that, I don't know if you've seen those mugs, but that would uh, accurately describe how I operate. But it's, uh, it's, it sustains me more than just in the morning. Like last night when the Cubs were losing, I was like, I need a cup of coffee. <laughs> so when I'm sad or angry, coffee helps. And I love the taste of it. And so it, it's just part of... Um, it, it's a problematic uh, sustainment for me sometimes. And we're talking about today's phrase as we work through this series of these I am statements that Jesus made about who he is and what he does. Uh, one of his statements reflected the fact that he is our sustainer. He says, I am the bread of life, essentially saying, I am your sustainer. And as we've worked through that, uh, following Jesus is this really challenging series of steps as we continue on the journey with him. He's going to say more and more challenging things to us in regards to our relationship as he draws us deeper into his kingdom. So this is where we begin today in probably one of the more challenging stories or, or chapters in all of the New Testament. It's in John 6 is where we're going to be reading today. So if you want to grab a Bible and flip ahead, uh, we're going to be on page 744. If you don't have one, you got one on your chair or on your phone, we're going to be reading John chapter 6. It's on page 744. But if you're on your phone, I'm going to read from pages uh, or verses 48 through 51 to begin with. And to give you a little context before we dive in, because we're not going to read the whole chapter. Uh, Jesus, at the beginning of this chapter, he produces a couple of mir miracles. And it sounds so ordinary, but they're rather shocking. All right? he, he grabs, uh, there's a crowd that's gathered. It says 5,000. It was probably more like 15 or 20,000 because they didn't count the women and children. So thousands of people have gathered, and they've got a few pieces of bread and a few fish, and he multiplies it and feeds everybody till they're full and completely sustained. And then after his miracle, um, after he kind of drops the mic, uh, he's going to cross the Sea of Galilee. His disciples take a boat. Jesus is like, you know what? I'm in the mood for a stroll. And he just walks across the, the top of the water to get to the other side. And everybody, so everybody has seen this. They've been completely amazed and shocked at what they've just saw. They've got full stomachs. Life is good. And they, they want more. They want to pursue him down even further. So they, a lot of these people get in boats and they follow him across uh, the Sea of Galilee to arrive uh, with Jesus. And as Christians, we got to put our cards on the table here. We believe in miracles. We believe in the mystery and the mystical part of our faith of following Jesus that stuff happens that we can't explain. And the way I justify that is, if Stephen Hawking can believe in aliens, Christians can believe in miracles, okay? So I, are you with me? So it's, just, it's weird, and it's going to get weirder as we read this story. So this is what he's got. He's done these miracles. People have followed him across the shore, and they want to hear more. And this is where we pick up the story in John chapter 6. We're going to read verses 48 through 51. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, Yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread 
will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So he keeps referring to bread repetitively here. So there's a couple things we need to know about bread. Bread is the centerpiece of the Mediterranean diet. Kind of like Taco Bell was the centerpiece of your diet in college, all right? Oh, it was just me? Okay, it was my centerpiece. But that... When he brings up bread, he's bringing up the, the item that everybody has every day that they think of. It's the centerpiece of the meal in Mediterranean culture. It's also a synonym for nourishment. When people think of bread, they think of something they're physically dependent on that sustains them. So it's a pretty interesting metaphor that he replaces bread with himself and puts him at the center of their nourishment and their physical dependency with this statement. So Jesus takes all these known facts about bread... And he puts himself at the center. And then this is where it gets a little bit weirder. He gets a little bit even more shocking, this time not with miracles, but with his words. And so we're going to pick it up. We're going to skip ahead to verse 53, and we're going to read verse 53 through 58. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So he's speaking metaphorically here. Uh, It may seem obvious to us. Uh, it didn't, to, the, to his listeners, um, the way he's describing this in such a graphic way, they are shocked and in a more negative way this time, a confusing way, a, a you know, there probably was some anger, because ba- basically who he's speaking to are Jewish people who have been completely physically dependent on the law, on following the rules and the Torah law that we see in the Old Testament. And Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 5, I have come to fulfill the law. Like, I'm the law with skin on. The law, now if you want to be sustained, you follow me. And he gets really graphic here. He says, you eat me and drink my blood. Like, that is the type of power that he's he's trying to uh, um, establish his kind of authority and the kind of dependency we need to have. So this would have been shocking to a culture who was addicted to rules and to law. And now he's saying, no, you follow a man now. You follow me, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And that freaked them out. And you see, we're not going to read that section, but after he delivers this speech, it says many disciples deserted him. They couldn't handle it. It was too much to ask. It was too shocking. Uh, it, it required them to, to take steps of faith. They, may not, they, they weren't ready to take. But it, it, for some reason or other, his shocking I am statement drove some of them away. They couldn't handle it. And that happens, I think, to every single person that follows Christ. We face those moments of tension where he will try to take, try to lead us into the next step on the journey, and we just start waving the white flag. Like, I'm out. And we may not verbally say that, but we have these moments in our faith where it just stops us in our tracks. And it may be for an hour, a week. It may be for years. That season where we're like, what? I, I, I don't know if I can go. I don't know if I can handle it. I don't know if I can trust him that much, that much and keep going forward. And we confuse the beauty of Jesus calling us into an even more dependent relationship with him 
with the humbling exposure of personal weakness. We think following Christ is something we should be able to handle. And he's saying, no, you need me and me alone. I'm the only one that can handle taking you deeper into my kingdom. So typically, when we reach those moments in our life, what this looks like is us reclaiming the throne of our life. Like we, we like Jesus for a certain extent or a certain season, and then we decide, nope, he can't handle that problem or this weakness of mine or that person or this cultural issue. I need to do something about it. I need to take the reins. So Jesus isn't enough, and we need to take control. And I could give some really specific personal examples, but I don't want to alienate anybody, so I'll use one for me. All right, I'm going to pick on myself again. Um, I've got this thing that I go to that sustains me, and it's really comfortable for me to get there, and it's really easy for me to get there. And I bring it up because it's really fresh for me, because over the last four or five days, I've noticed it happening again. And what sustains me is anger. It's really easy for me to live off of a well of anger and to start filling that with stuff that I see, problems I see, and not like it, and just live off of that injustice or that, that disturbance over what's happening around me or in the lives of people around me or in my own life. And I could feed off of anger. Now, anger in and of itself is not a sin. But depending on it, letting it sustain you, is instead of living off of Christ. And so what I typically do is I get really angry about legitimate stuff, righteous stuff, with the exception of the Cubs being down three to one. That's not righteous. That's a problem. All right. Letting that... I, get, I prayed for the Cubs last night. All right. I've never, I've never prayed for sports. Guilty. I'm that guy that I always said, don't do that. I did it last night. Oh, man. Um, but let's move on from that because I'll just get angry. What I do, what I need to do, and what we need to do when we come to these moments where we want to live off of the emotion or over our own control, is we, I have to let the anger guide me to Christ and hand it to him. It is a good emotion as long as it leads to me letting, like giving it to him and emptying that well, not inside of my own heart, but into him and into his trust and into his sustainment. That's where it becomes a problem because I carry it around like a burden. I carry around my anger like it's a fuel tank and I just run off of it. And what I need to do is uh, let it leak into Christ and allow him to sustain me. There's a massive difference between letting anger and love sustain you. And I've noticed that. And there's a subtle, sh- it's a very subtle shift that can occur. But that's just one of many potentially personal examples of reaching a point on the journey with Christ where you think, now, I got to take control. I got this. It's really easy, of, easy for us to just become ninjas of our own life and just take control. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. In other words, I alone am your sustainer. Now, I believe that as a Christian, but I don't always live it. And there's a couple, I can use a couple of collective examples that I think we're all prone to make the mistake of doing that I've, I've been noticing in our culture. And I think I can talk about them because I think that we can all be like, yep, I've done that. So it'll be like less personal because it's something that's just happening everywhere. So the first one is I notice a tendency for people of faith to claim allegiance with one presidential candidate over the other. I've noticed the religious right and the religious left doing this. And both are struggling with this. I'm struggling with this. Something about our cultural climate seems so dire right now that we must do something about it. We must 
take the reins and, and participate and take control politically. The politics of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have nothing to do with the kingdom of Christ. He is the only sustainer of his politics. You want to see his politics? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and know that the only way those are instituted are through his kingdom. No one else has any control or power. He has all the authority. And I'm not saying that to be antagonistic. I'm saying it because it's really good news. It's re it, re ah, it relieves the pressure and the noise that we're experiencing in our culture. And I can find peace and joy in the fact that come November 9th, when all the dust is settled, my sustainer and our king will still be sitting on the throne. And his politics will continue to roll into earth through his people and people who are willing to continue down the journey of following him. So we shift our hopes of sustainment from the results of an election to the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. And it's like this daily reminder, I feel like right now, that we have to remind ourselves that he is reigning no matter what happens. Another thing I think that we're prone to allow to sustain us rather than Christ are our external circumstances. Uh, and this is kind of living in America 101, all right? Pursue your dreams, pursue uh, your, the circumstances that you want, and that, that defines you, that sustains you, that journey, that, that attack of what you want to make out of life. And at some point, if you haven't experienced this yet, you will fail. And it does not feel good to fail. I have failed a lot. And we, if, if we're finding our sustenance in our external circumstances, when we fail, disappointment and despair will follow if it's not Christ that's sustaining us in those seasons. Um, there's a lot of educated people in here. Um, and there's going to come a time where your education and your career success won't sustain your joy or peace. You will either get bored with it, you will fail, something will happen that will reveal itself as an uh, uh, incompatible sustainer of your heart and your mind and your life. Or maybe we have a lot of immigrants here, all right? A lot of different ethnicities represented, uh, particularly in Silver Spring. And I imagine there's a tendency for insecurity and doubt to creep in when you see the political headlines or when you personally experience racism or bigotry. Two things I've never experienced as a white American male. I don't know what bigotry feels like. I don't know what racism feels like. I've never experienced it. Your circumstances are uniquely challenging and incredibly challenging. So what you get a lot of times is you get mistreatment or judgment when what you should get is an apology and they're not coming. So I imagine um, the, the uh, frustration, the anger, the injustice that you experience is righteous. And I imagine it would be really easy to live off of that and to let that fuel you and to build the chip and carry it around. But we have to remember that mistreatment, injustice can't sustain you. Jesus can sustain you. And that is the hope that we find our sustenance in. So channel your worries, your concerns, your anxiety into the truth that you are cherished by him and he operates a kingdom where you are always welcome and you are not judged and you are not cast aside or kept at a distance. You are beautifully and wonderfully made and he cherishes you and it's a much better sustainment to remind ourselves of who God is and how much he loves us. And that's just a couple of examples. But to personalize this, think about this on a personal level. What's the engine that's driving you right now that's not Christ? What is sustaining you? What's causing you to move through life? 
Where's the, the motivation and the energy coming from? My, right now, mine's coming from anger. That's got to change. What is it for you? There's a Talmud riddle. It says, if God intended man to live on bread, why didn't he create a bread tree? It would have been a lot easier. Because God wants us to participate. He wants us to, to make and to be a part of him being our sustainer. God is not some puppet master who's pulling strings. Sorry, Calvinists. He's inviting us into a participatory relationship. I've heard a, a theologian describe it as a dance. I don't know if that weirds you out or if that's you know, something you can relate to. But it, there's a relationship, an ebb and a flow to our connection to Christ. And this reveals the beginning of the solution, the fact that he is asking us, inviting us to participate in making him the sustainer and him the bread of our lives. So how do we do this? What's it look like to put Jesus at the center and for him to be our sustainer? So in short, we participate in the collective movement of people known as the church. That's, that's the short answer. And there's a lot more depth to it than that, and more depth than I can get into in the next five minutes or so, but I'll do my best here. If we look at John 6 and we look all throughout the New Testament, we notice that God is a communal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've heard, uh, I, think, I think a guy named Richard Rohr say, uh, it's almost like we're, we've been invited to be the fourth person in the Trinity. Like that kind of intimacy, that kind of rhythm, that kind of closeness and proximity to God. So we're invited into this communal uh, activity of God because you can't be a Christian and go it alone. It's not possible. All right? It's a journey with other people. So we see Jesus operate and draw people in to four different community contexts in his, in his ministry. And this, this section of John that we, we didn't read all of it, but this section reveals uh, this pattern that he has in his ministry. So Jesus has a public space ministry. So this would be an example of a public space ministry, all right? Quite a few people. This is not a social gathering. We all don't, we don't know each other, and only one person is, is talking. There's not like a dialogue. There's not that kind of thing going on. So another example would be like a basketball game uh, or some sort of event or a movie that's a public uh, gathering. Jesus had that going on. So in John 6, we see that with a feeding of the thousands. It's a public event, a public ministry. Good things happen in public spaces. So that's one part of his ministry. He also had a social space ministry to a smaller group of more committed followers. I would imagine, it's not in there, so I'm, I, you know, go with me on this and disagree with me if you want, but I would imagine not every single person that was at the feeding crossed the Sea of Galilee. I imagine some people stayed behind. They're like, I'm good. I've seen enough. All right, I'm full. And I can't walk on water. So I'm just, I'm, I don't want to get into a boat. If I fall over, I might sink. Who knows what kind of, you're not supposed to swim like within an hour after you eat. I don't know. But I'm guessing not all of them went. Um, and we kind of notice this. He gives some clues to this when he starts talking to him. And he, he lays out these challenging words. And it says, many disciples deserted him. So he had a smaller group of disciples of like, 70-ish. So if you look at Luke 10, it says 72. So we know he had a social space context, like an extended family size ministry context. And when he lays out this really challenging teaching in John 6, some of them left. I'm like, I'm out. This is getting way too weird for me. And so they, they desert. And then he says, then you, if you keep reading the story, you see he's got his 12. He turns to them. He says, you want to leave too? And they stay. And that's the personal space community context that Jesus operates in. He spends a lot of time with his 12 disciples. And then something that's not mentioned in John 6, but we see it in scriptures. He had an inner circle. 
Peter, James, and John. He had an intimate, tight community where he revealed more of himself than to anybody else. Uh, a perfect example of that would be in Luke chapter 9. Uh, the transfiguration happens where he basically peels off his human skin and reveals his divine nature to these guys. And it's, it's, it's one of the most powerful and shocking and probably scary miracles they witness. The most intimate miracle. And it was reserved for that group of three. So we see him public space, social space, personal space, intimate space. And we see this rhythm that he keeps throughout his ministry. And so that's, that's what makes up the church. The church tries to imitate, as a collection of people, Jesus. We just follow his lead, and we do it together. You can't do it alone. It's, it's designed to be together. So he has this progression that he goes through. So at Restore, our imitation of that would be Sunday morning as our public space. We get together. Uh, we have some coffee. We have some uh, our, we have some kids' ministry. We, we read the Bible. We study Jesus. We, we say hey to people we haven't seen in a while. We worship through song. And it's kind of a celebratory atmosphere. So that's a public, sp- public space. And we have missional communities, which are our imitation of Jesus' social space context. It's a smaller group of people, like 20 to 30 people. And we meet in each other's homes. So it's a little bit more intimate than, this, than meeting in a pub when you're meeting in someone's living room. So it's a, a, more in, it's, it's a progression of relational intimacy that Jesus is drawing us into. And that's why missional community is so critical because we have real communion. All right, not just a cracker and a cup of juice. We have beer and wine and awesome food, all right? I, I don't think anybody's brought a bag of Doritos to a missional community in quite some time. Like, we get real with that food, all right? People bring gourmet stuff and we really enjoy ourselves, like legit communion. And then we talk about stuff. Like, there's, there's not just a monologue. There's dialogue in a social space context in missional community. Then we have discipleship huddles, which are really intentional, talking about some, some core biblical concepts of what it means to follow Jesus and tapping into what's God saying to me. Because I can't play your Holy Spirit. I would love to give you a bunch of bullet points today that are deeply personal and nail it. And, but I don't know your story because I'm not God. And so something that's really important that we see in these personal spaces and discipleship huddles are people learning to identify the voice of God, what he's saying to them, and what they're going to do about it. And it's beautiful. It's amazing to see um, God speaking to people and see how they respond to it and just do amazing things. Uh, and then the intimate part of that, it's more organic in our church. It's, uh, maybe your, your spouse is, an, is the most intimate relationship you have if you're married or your closest set of friends, like one or two people. But also, Jesus wants that intimate relationship with you. He wants you to be in that circle like Peter, James, and John were. He wants to reveal stuff to you that, that, it, that is very unique to his particular love of you. Fill in your name there. And the primary way that he does that now is through prayer. It's through exploring this ongoing conversation and listening and this dialogue and this intimate relationship with God, which if you look at going through this, it gets more and more and more intimate as we approach Christ. And we can stop at each, like, well, I don't want to go to the next one. Like, Sunday morning's enough. I don't want to do missional community. Or I'm not sure if I want to do discipleship. And I don't know how to pray. Like, we can find excuses to not continue on the journey. But I promise you, if you continue on the journey, even when you don't feel like it, even when it makes you uncomfortable, even when he says stuff, like in John 6, you're like, what does that mean? Even when he asks you to, to do stuff or connect with people that make you uncomfortable, continuing on the journey 
is going to be a, a beautiful experience as he draws us into deeper connection with him. So I want to talk about that, that last space, intimate space, briefly, uh, because it's more organic in nature in our church. We don't have like an organized thing. Because it's hard to like legislate, you know, intimacy. You can't like force it. It just has to ha- it just You just got to keep trying it and seeing what works and what doesn't. So I want to focus in on prayer. If that's something, if prayer... Um, it's personal to me too because I wasn't ever like a big prayer person. It was a, it was a struggle for me. But in, but in the last 18 months or so, prayer has become such um, a beautiful, intimate relationship with Christ. And I know why I'm living off a well of anger right now because I didn't pray for like four days in a row. That's a problem. And I, I, I immediately lose that intimacy and that connection and that sustainment in Christ. And I find my sustainment in something else. But if you want to learn how to pray, and you, and you were like, you know, I'd be interested in, in studying this a little bit more, or trying it, or hearing some more about it, write that on your connection card, because uh, we might do something in the next month or two in, in our living room space, where uh, we teach you how to pray. We'll do like a prayer school, all right? Like a couple hours, we'll have food, all right? Check. It's important. And we'll talk about prayer. And if that's something that interests, I'm literally gauging interest, all right? So if you, if you are, if you would be interested in that, put that on your connection card, and leave that. But man, it's so, uh, so necessary for Jesus to be our bread, our sustainer, to have a robust and a rhythmic prayer life. It's incredible. And whatever step on the journey you're stopped at, this is Sunday morning, this should be a rhythmic part of your life. Is it missional community? That should be a rhythmic part of your life. Becoming a disciple, that should be a rhythmic part of your life. An intimate connection with God should be a rhythmic part of your life. So to try, to, try to, in the midst of this, figure out, like, what's God saying to me? Like, what, what's the next step on the journey? And then let us know, how can we help? Is it, mission, is it missional community information? Is it, you know, some sort of prayer school? Like, where we just talk about, like, what prayer is and how to do it? Let us know. Even if it's anonymous. You don't have to put your name on the connection card. Uh, we just want to know. But let's pray, and then we're going to sing one more time.